Uh, let's begin with, if you don't mind, a, a, a brief story from the book of Joshua. Uh, I've been doing a daily reading through the scriptures uh, this year. And uh, I'm reminded of a moment that I think is fairly famous in the scriptures. You might remember it. Uh, but it's that moment where Joshua gathers all the people of God around. And they've firmly established themselves within the promised land. God's kept his promises to make them a people and to give them this land. And Joshua is a little bit older now. And so he gathers everybody together and he gives that famous quote, you know, that quote that was famous long before you could buy it on a piece of wood in in a Joann's and hang it up in your kitchen. That one that says, choose this day whom you will serve. And then Joshua says, but as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you guys familiar with that verse? If you've seen it, at least at a Target or somewhere, that maybe, uh, maybe it is hanging in your household. But it's a verse that I think we've reminded ourselves over the years uh, as the people of God. And what Joshua is doing, he's saying, listen, all the way back to Abraham. I mean, this promise is that God would make for himself a people, and he'd protect them and give them a place to worship. And Joshua's saying, It happened. I mean, that's what's going on right now, guys. Here we stand in the promised land, and our our enemies have been uh, vanquished and conquered, and we stand here. Uh, You need to decide who you are and what you're going to do. Joshua says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, my people, for my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so the people of God are like, hey, we're in. Sign us up. I'm here to serve. We're going to do it. And Joshua's response is very unpastoral. He goes, you can't do that. You're crazy. Literally. Joshua 20, you aren't able to do it. And they're like, no, 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 we're, <laughs> we're in. We'll do it. And Joshua says, okay, then here's the deal. Put away the gods of Egypt in your home. Because if you don't put away the gods of Egypt in your home, you're not going to be forgiven and the wrath of God's going to be poured out on you. Now, he doesn't say you shouldn't do it. He doesn't say don't do it. You wouldn't do it. He's like, right now, you're not able to make the commitment that you've made. You can't serve the Lord the way you're saying you serve the Lord because there is a contradiction going on in your household right now. You still have the gods of Egypt in your home. So put them away. Don't say privately, we're going to serve the Lord. And don't say corporately, you're going to serve the Lord. But then publicly, look like every other household on the face of the planet. You can't do that. If you do, God's wrath can be poured out on you. It's that moment where Joshua is nearing the end of his ministry, and he wants the people of God to wrestle well with the commitment they're making. Yes, make a commitment to serve the Lord, but recognize that you're called to be a household that looks different than the rest of the world. You're a people set apart for God's good pleasure. God gave you the land to worship. It's got to look different if you're going to serve the Lord. Now, I must admit personally, and for my household, I've had to wrestle with this verse. 17 years as a full-time minister and over 20 years as an officer in the church. And so I'm I'm still a minister. I'm still an officer in the church, but it looks different right now for me all of a sudden. I'm not pastoring a church for the first time in 17 years, and I'm not actively part of a, a, a session after 20. And God's blessing me with wonderful opportunities to be a missionary in the marketplace. But I've got to ask myself, you know what? My rhythms have changed. I'm not writing a sermon every single Sunday. 
I'm not training officers and deacons at this present moment. I'm not, I'm, I'm not leading Bible studies as I had for so many years. What does it look like for my household to serve the Lord? It's a different reckoning for me all of a sudden. But you don't have to have gone through the same transition I've gone through for you to ask that same question. You can stand just as the people of God stood before Joshua and say, what is it for my household to serve the Lord? And so as I have wrestled with that, I thought the best thing I could do, uh, Leonard said, preach on what you want as long as you don't preach on 2 Samuel. I had to figure out, well, what are we going to do? And I thought, well, why don't I just wrestle along with you about what it looks like to serve the Lord? And if you're going to wrestle with what it looks like to serve the Lord, and if I'm going to wrestle on what it looks like to serve the Lord, we should go to just one place, and that would be the person of Jesus Christ. What's the impact of his service to teach us what it looks like to serve the Lord? So our, our big idea today is going to be the impact of Jesus' service. Basically, how do we learn to serve because of Jesus' service? So if you're able, either in present or online, to stand with us for the reading of God's word, I'd like to read Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. If you would allow me, let me read these verses to you, please. Begin at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things with me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's be seated. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me tell you where we are. I've dropped you right in the middle of a Christmas passage, haven't I? Uh, in the, uh, this year, in my devotions, I decided to kind of get back to simplicity. So I decided to read through the Bible again in a year. I've done it a couple of times. I haven't done it recently, and I'm following a Bible reading plan, probably like many of you, that gives you a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of Psalm, and a little bit of New Testament, right? So you don't spend a month reading like genealogies. It gives you a little bit of a, a mixture. And so that means I got to bump into the birth of Jesus outside of December, and it's been encouraging for me. And this passage, before we jump into it, it's called the Magnificat. It's that beautiful song of Mary a couple of months before the birth of Jesus, called that because she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So that's where we are. And you can see in that passage that already, before we jump in, that it talks about the service of Jesus and the service of God to Mary and how it impacts us. So why don't we look at this bit by bit? I've got a a couple of points you can find in your bulletin that's going to show us what true service is like because of the service of Jesus. And the first is that true service is always merciful. If you don't mind, I'd like to, to walk us through those first few verses again at verse 46, because true service is always merciful. Mary says this in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Let me stop there. Those are parallel, soul and spirit. They're identical. Often in, in Hebrew poetry or in Hebrew songs, uh, you get like this, this parallelism, so you'll get the same thing spoken of twice. And so that's what she says. She's like, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's a, 
It's a moment of ecstatic worship that I look at with jealousy. Like I, like I would love to, to at times. I think you might have had them along the way, and I've had them along the way, but I, I wish I had them more frequently where I could just say, like my whole entire being just worships God right now. Like my soul magnifies God, like in some way that I can actually magnify who God is. Like I, I could make him bigger to my soul and bigger to the people around me. And you got to remember, Mary is this teenage girl with no status, nothing upon which anybody in the world would look at her even twice unless they looked at her to, to, to pour out disdain on her. She's like, my soul magnifies, like every single thing about me magnifies God. I rejoice in God, my Savior. Why? Because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, this isn't a look like you'd say, hey, look over there, or look at this. It's a seeing. It's a recognition of a person. Like, have you ever said to someone, I don't feel seen? Or at least have you ever heard that expression? You're not saying that people don't make uh, contact with you when they scan through a room. They're saying, I don't feel recognized. I feel invisible. I don't feel like anyone actually sees me for who I am. Yes, your eyeballs are on me, but do you really see me? These are the kind of conversations that happen in intimate relationships, right? Maybe it's the kind of conversation for, for someone who feels like they're walking through day to day, and they just don't feel like anyone is actually like, recognizing them as there. And Mary, this, this humble servant, this teenager, who's probably got a, a scandalous-ridden life because she's pregnant and everyone knows that that kind of happened before Joseph came along and so she's uh, actually kind of hiding out in this passage away from her hometown because of the scandal. And what she's saying is, I'm actually seen. In this moment that would seem to be shameful to the culture, in this moment where she would probably feel the most invisible unless people are deriding her, she's like, I'm being seen right now. Like, God has poured out mercy on me because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Not only is she seen, but that being seen is an act of God pouring mercy out on her. Like God doesn't look at the humble estate of servants and then judge them. He doesn't look at the humble estate of servants and destroy them. He looks on the humble estate of his servants and he lifts them up. Because humility is the proper posture before a God who is holy, right? And she's saying, he's looked at me and not only am I going from this scandalous, culturally shame-filled teenage Hebrew girl, now all generations are going to call me blessed. Not the people you think would be called blessed, right? Not the wealthy or the status achieving or uh, princes. It's like everyone's going to look at me, generation after generation, are going to look at me and call me blessed. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She takes that blessing that's individual and she pours it out all the way extended to you. You see, because generation to generation are going to know who she is, right? And then she says, and if those generations fear God, God's mercy is going to be poured out on them as well. She's seen, which is an act of mercy. She's blessed by that. 
She knows that generation after generation are going to call her blessed, which we do. But those same generations, they receive mercy. You receive mercy by fearing God. Fearing God, faith in God is synonymous. Like our faith in God is not some passive, like I believe this thing knowledge. It's more than just a a knowledgeable, like recognition, right? I mean, the the, the demons in hell believe everything about Jesus, right? It's more than that. It's, It's a fearing and recognition of a holy God. And faith in him alone for what he's done. You see, the service of God here to Mary is a pouring out of mercy. And when God, just absolutely astounding, when God serves his people, it's always an act of mercy. Astounding that in this passage, what we see is God serving Mary, generation after generation, all the way to God serving us. When I wrestle presently with what it looks like for me and my household to serve the Lord, and when you hopefully and rightfully recognize and reckon with what does it look like for me to serve the Lord, or even congregationally for hope of Christ to serve the Lord, service is always mercy. You're doing something for someone else. Sometimes it's because they can't do it themselves, right? That's the the pure mercy ministry of your deacons in the church here, right? Like someone has a financial need and you meet the financial need, right? But sometimes it's, I'm going to do this for you because you're weary and tired. Or sometimes it's, I'm going to serve you just purely because I see the image of God in you. It engenders humility before God for me to serve. Service is always merciful. So as I reckon with what that looks like for my household and you and this church, if we're going to serve, it's got to be an act of mercy because that is the pattern and example and the character of God himself. God's going to use this act of worship to impact generation after generation. And we stand now with the benefit and the blessing of reading it and hearing it so that our service too might be transformed as an example of the gospel from generation to generation. Let's go forward. Uh, True service is merciful, but true service is always an act of justice. True service always brings justice. Now we're going to sit here for a minute. That's the pop buzzword of the day. And I promised Leonard I wouldn't get myself or you guys in trouble too much here. So let me go forward in verse 51. What has God done? He's shown strength with his arm. Now that's common language in that day because that's what kings and rulers do. They show strength with their arm. If a ruler can't show strength with his arm, he wasn't a ruler much longer. He was conquered by the next who had more power. And so what God does here is he shows strength with his arm. How? He scattered the proud the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he's sent away empty. So again, what's happening here in this song is uh, Mary's a fantastic Hebrew poet. She's using uh, one of the patterns that is part of Hebrew poetry where you say, well, there's this, but there's also that. This one thing, but also this. It's very common in Hebrew poetry. And that's what she's doing. 
She's like, well, listen, uh, God has uh, he's shown his power with the power of his arm. And this is what he's done. He scattered the proud, but he exalted the humble. The hungry, he's filled with good things. And the rich, he sent away empty. This, but that. It's the exact opposite of the way our world works. The rich were sent away. The hungry were filled. Those who thought so much of themselves, God's brought them down. But those who think nothing of themselves, he's lifted up. The humble estate is transformed. And the proud state is brought down. You see, that is what justice looks like before God. Because pride and arrogance, even if it's among each other, is ultimately pride and arrogance against God himself. Any who would exalt themselves against God, God brings down. There's only one true and holy and righteous God. He is the only who sits upon a throne righteously. And any who would walk in humility before him, he lifts up. Mary's the ultimate example of that. So in our day, the most popular word is justice. It's the conversation. And rightfully so, there's innumerable acts of injustice in our world every day. Private and on Twitter. (laughs) Public and on Instagram and never before seen. And we're in an age where the injustice of our world is all of a sudden given a camera. And you ask ourselves, is it worse than it's ever been? Or are we just now able to see it live on TV? And seeking justice in this world is absolutely the work of those who've experienced the justice of God. Now, how have you experienced the justice of God? By grace, our experience of the justice of God is that our sins were punished. But they were punished through the work of Jesus Christ. God has been absolutely just with you. He didn't say, oh, those sins, we're just not going to worry about them. Because sin is ultimately treason against a holy and righteous God. It's not just a hang-up. It's not just a hiccup. It's not just bad wiring. Our sin is actually cosmic treason against a holy and righteous God. And God has been 100% just with you. In fact, he's been 100% just with every single creature on the face of the planet. Meaning, those sins have been punished. Yours are either punished on Jesus Christ, or ultimately, they'll be punished throughout eternity. And what Mary has said here is, She's saying, hey, hey guys, I experienced this firsthand right now. Like, I've been humbled and God poured out mercy. And God's service to me is that what he did is he lifted up the humble and he's brought down the exalted. When we serve, when we take this from God's service to us, when we serve, it must be injustice. It must be in a work of justice. You have a need, you can't meet it, well then it's going to be met. If there's a wrong in which you've experienced, the church must be about enabling you to find justice in that area. 
It's not justice for justice sake. That would be the idolatry of justice, which I believe is an element of our present culture. But those who know the true justice of God should be those who lead into the justice of this world. We can't dismiss the need for justice because it is misabused or it has been abused, excuse me, by our culture. You see, our justice before the world begins in humility. In humility. I completely deserve the wrath of God, as do you. We lead with the helplessness we have because of sin. But then we say, but I've been served by God because my sins have been punished on Jesus Christ. And in my humble estate, I cried out for mercy and mercy was poured out. Friends, when you have an opportunity to serve, you will serve in the most humble of tones and words, deeds, and action. Because the justice poured out with you was absolutely beyond your control. Christ did it for you. You weren't able to make justice. You weren't able to make right before God. Even the very repentance and faith that you cried out with to God, according to Ephesians 2, he gave to you. You couldn't even cry out for mercy. He had to give you the faith to cry out for mercy and repent. And Mary's sitting here saying, I don't deserve any of this. But he poured out his mercy and he served me in my humble estate. Service is always merciful and it's always just. And service is always the nature of God's promises. Look at verse 54. Mary goes from talking about what's doing with her and expanding it to all the people of God. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She, like Joshua, says, listen, God kept all of his promises. He said he was going to make a people, and he did it. He said he was going to give them a land, he did it. And he said that he was going to send a Savior. And Mary is singing this song knowing that that Savior resides within her. Astounding. The baby that she's carrying, she knows, is her Savior. God kept his promises. Now, on a quick side note, a little off-ramp. When we struggle if we think that God is faithful or present or uh, keeping his promises to us. Keeping his promise to make a people and to give them a land and to bring a savior over the course of thousands of years and then to enable that to happen with a poor teenage girl and then for that faith to remain and endure, to get to you. Please, my friends, remind yourself, if you struggle with whether God is present or keeping his promises, he has overcome so much more then what is your present difficulty? And I don't mean to minimize your present difficulty. But from generation to generation, he kept his promises to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Just as God helped the people of God in the past, now he helps the people of God in the present. 
Just as he helped the people of God and kept his promises to the people in the past, now he keeps his promises to you. And all those promises are made yes and amen. How? Through Jesus Christ. Through the very child that Mary is celebrating. Every promise God ever made to you is a yes, stamped yes. Amen. Yes and amen. Mary's looking at this and she's like, what's going on this astounding? I'm this insignificant, humble girl, presently derided. I'm hiding out in another city at the present moment. And he looked at me and God's being merciful to me and he's doing great justice in the world through me and generation to generation of being blessed, but he's been doing this forever. Of course, he's gonna continue doing it for generation to generation. It's who he is. And we look at that and it gives us not only a picture of the character of, the, of God and not only a testimony to what he's done from day in and day out, it begins to give us a picture of what our service should be like. Mark 10, whoever would be great among you must be what? A servant. Whoever would be first must be a slave to all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Your worship of God is service. Your obedience is service. Your moment by moment living out your faith in Jesus Christ is service. Because even Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve and be the servant of all. Now, in my, <clears throat> in my reading uh, through Old Testament, Psalms, and New Testament, uh, let me land on Joshua again for a minute because that story has been wonderful to me. There's a story um, in Joshua 9. Jericho has fallen, and, and Israel is, is really set for the first time, Right? They're starting to unpack the bags, you know, that kind of thing. And there's a community, there's a nation near them called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites have a little huddle to themselves, and they're like, man, this Yahweh, he is wrecking shop everywhere he goes. I mean, did you hear what happened to Jericho? Crazy stuff. So the leaders of the Gibeonites are like, we need to make peace with Israel. Great idea, right? But they get it wrong. They're like, well, why don't we lie to them so that we can make peace with them, Right? So what they do is the leaders of the Gibeonites get together and they go get all their old shoes, get all their old clothing, and they get a bunch of old wineskins. And the leaders act like they've been on a big journey. And they, they go into the camp and they're like, hey, can we speak to Joshua? And he's like, yeah, what's up, dudes? Who are you guys? And they're like, hey, we've been on a far, far away journey. We've traveled so far to be with you guys. Look, my shoes are worn out. We just want to make peace with you. Joshua checks him out like, dude, those guys do need some new shoes. All right, Joshua says, tell you what, here's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> he says, I'm going to make a covenant with God, very serious business, that I will be at peace with you and you will be at peace with us. And the Gibeonites are like, done, done. I mean, Joshua swears by the character of God, he'll be at peace with the Gibeonites, right? So the leaders of the Gibeonites, they're hanging out for a couple of days, but three days later, Someone within Israel camp goes like, wait a minute. I saw you a couple of days around the corner. I know who you are. So he runs back to Joshua and like, they're liars. They literally live around the corner. Joshua, go destroy them. Joshua says, nope, can't do it. 
I'm going to be merciful to the Gibeonites despite the fact that they lied to us. And I'm going to be just with them and keep my word because I made a promise before God to be at peace with them. He said, I'll be merciful to them. They 100% lied to us, but I'll be merciful to them. And I'm going to be just. I'm going to keep my word because I made a promise before God to be at peace with them. Now, that's a wonderful picture of Mary's story. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. And it's a wonderful picture of how God interacts with us. The next next verse tripped me up a little bit. It really did because I was listening to this verse while I was out running. And Joshua says, however, Gibeonites, you will be woodcutters and water carriers in Israel going forward. Still merciful, but I was like, what is that? Is that indentured servanthood? Like, you know, in my wonderful, uh, you know, 2021 idea of how all these things work, I kind of struggle with what that is. Like, is that fair? No fair would be destroying them, but are they slaves? Are they indentured servants? What's going on here? So I literally stopped. I got a little button on my, on my, on my headphones so that I can just pause stuff. And so I, I walk for a minute, and I'm just thinking about it. <clears throat> I love it. I mean, I, I love Joshua's commitment to his covenant before the Lord, right? Like as, as a leader in the church, you go, that, that's the way to do it, right? The people of God want something. He's like, no, we, we made a covenant. We're going to be merciful, just. We're, we're going to keep our promises. And then wonderfully, a verse came to mind. It was Psalm 84. Now, I bet most everybody in here knows the first half of Psalm 84. It, beginning of Psalm 84 is better as one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Have you ever sung that song? I bet you have. You know, better as one day in your courts, better as one day in your house, better as one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. So I went home and I looked it up, but there's a second half to Psalm 84 that says this. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tent of the wicked. Now, doorkeepers have no status, none, no status whatsoever. They're a doorkeeper. I guess that's, a, you know, just stand there open the door, I guess. I guess that's what a doorkeeper was at that time. But he says, it would be better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tent of the wicked. So I look at the Gibeonites, and they deserved to be wiped out at that point in time, but Joshua was merciful and he was just, he kept his promises. And I thought, they got to be woodcutters among the people of God and receive all the blessings of the community of God. But then I thought about us. Over and over again, you're called to be a servant, right? Over and over again, we are, we're servants, right? But what did Jesus tell his disciples before he died? He said, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you brothers. You see, you and I, through the work of Christ, we are servants. We'll always be a servant. But we're not doorkeepers. We're sons and daughters of the king. We're the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We're loved as Christ is loved. You see, our service of God is an exalted status. You're not a doorkeeper. Though being a doorkeeper 
would be better than any other alternative in this world, right? Just being a doorkeeper in the house of God would be better than the tent of this world. But Jesus Christ himself didn't come to be served, but to serve. He served in his obedience in which we were unable to perform. He served in his death, which was just penalty for our sin. And he served us in his resurrection so that we might have transformation in new life. Friends, the story, this, excuse me, the song of Mary presents to us God's service to us, right? God was merciful to Mary and he's merciful to you. God was just to Mary and he is just to you. God kept all his promises to Mary and God has kept his promises from generation to generation, leading to you and beyond the generations of even this church. And when we look at the work of Christ and then we begin to apply it for us as servants, as children, brothers and sisters of Christ, we begin to see that what it really looks like is demonstrating mercy to one another and to this world. To stand for justice within the church and beyond the borders of the church. And to celebrate the kept promises of God and with every measure of the help of the Holy Spirit, God enabling us to keep our vows, vows within our marriages, vows within our churches, vows as a citizen, all not to lift ourselves up, but ultimately to lift up the character of our God, the character of our Savior, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Reminding ourselves that what we're called to has so many difficulties in this world. Derision, persecution, mockery. But our service is not for the world. Our service is ultimately to glorify God, to live out Jesus Christ's example and work, constantly being enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, lifting the power of the gospel up to ourselves, to one another, to a lost and dying world. Whoever will be great among you, be a servant. Whoever will be first, be the slave of all. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. The many who sit here now, and the many who will believe through your faithful service to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Your work is beyond any that we could fathom. Thank you for the demonstration of your mercy through your faithfulness of the Old Testament, demonstration of mercy poured out to Mary, the demonstration of the work of Jesus Christ, and now your demonstration of mercy to us, the church. We say thank you to all this in Jesus' name. Amen.